It's another great day for wellness, and this is Bones bringing the packs of F3 Nation the latest strategies and tips to accelerate their king and optimize their queen. Health is a journey and requires you to take a proactive approach on a daily basis. Knowing exactly what to do and how to do it will help you achieve it faster. Each week, we are going to be interviewing the leading health and wellness experts, sharing inspiring stories from the packs, and diving into the latest research to help you optimize your health. So get ready as we embark on your hunt for wellness. Well, welcome back to another edition of the Hunt for Wellness podcast. This is Dr. Tunis Hunt, otherwise known as Bones in the Gloom and Packs. I am super excited to be back with you this week and to share a topic and a subject matter that uh, I've really wanted to dive into personally. Um, part of this health journey of mine is to continuously learn, explore, try to get better and dial in my own nutrition. And often it is things that I'm battling or curious about that piques my interest in in the topics that I look at, the topics that I explore, and certainly the topics I um, try to learn enough about so that I can teach others. And recently, and I explained this, I think several times in previous episodes, or even uh, as I do the COT podcast health tip, I mentioned my involvement with the Blue Ridge Relay recently. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, that is a 204, 205-ish mile relay race that you do with some other participants. And depending on the size of your team, uh, it dictates the amount of energy and mileage that you will run personally. I was uh, given an opportunity to be part of what we call an ultra team that is comprised of six individuals splitting essentially that 206 mile distance, uh, divided up into 36 legs. So for all doing the math here, that left me six legs and approximately 34, 35 ish miles, uh, to cover over that time. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, I did train, I did practice and, and try to dial in my nutrition. I tried to dial in my hydration, but despite my best efforts, I found myself really experiencing tons of cramping about halfway through the race and certainly post-race or as I got closer to the finish line to the point where it was miserable. Uh, you know, I, I joked after the race, I was our sixth runner, which meant I ran the 36th leg. And so at the end I was um, going back to our vehicle to change, and it took me about 45 minutes just to change out of my running attire into just, you know, some lounging attire. And that was because every time I went to like bend down to, to tie my shoe or untie my shoe, I'd cramp up every time I'd try to take my shirt off or change out my pants, I would just seize up in lots of different spots of my body. And it was just excruciating and miserable. And so clearly my muscles and my body was telling me that I did not do something properly. So it really inspired me to look at hydration, look at electrolytes, and then really what I could possibly have done differently 
And if I have an opportunity to do something like this in the future, what I would do instead in my training, and then ultimately what I would do as a strategy, as it comes or as it pertains to hydration and electrolyte uh, usage. So a couple things leading up to my um, event, I was practicing more of a animal-based diet, uh, very on the spectrum, close to that carnivore-ish diet, if you will. I was really restricting my carbohydrate intake. I was actually even restricting my fruit and vegetable intake, uh, very little, and really just kind of concentrating on animal protein. And I was feeling great. Uh, I would go out for runs, feel great. I would recover extremely quickly. And the next day would feel amazing. And I really felt like I was onto something that I was doing something that was really working for me. And when I went into the race, I prepped that way. I, I did include some carbohydrate style foods, uh, like sweet potato and, um, avocado. But outside of that, really my meals were pretty protein dense thinking that muscle recovery, muscle repair was the strategy I wanted to continue to, to, to dial in. And my concern was switching up my diet during the race may also cause other issues like gastrointestinal distress or, or whatever. So anyway, I kind of went with that mindset and all that to say that as a result of doing that, I, I did not end up seeing the results that I wanted, hence the cramping that I just mentioned. So I really wanted to go back to the drawing board here and say, what would I have done differently? Was it dietarily that I was doing something wrong? Was I not hydrating enough? Was my electrolyte uh, strategy just way off? Um, or what I also saw as I kind of dug into the research is my training style was probably not uh, adequate or, or proper. So I mentioned that I was ramping up my miles going into the race, but really at a single time or a single day, I wasn't really more running more than six to eight miles at a time. And I got really good at running six to eight miles and then having proper rest. And the next day being able to run six to eight miles and feeling amazing again. And because each of my legs that I was going to part participate in and, and personally run was kind of in that, uh, mileage frame. I felt like that's all I really needed to do from a training standpoint. Well, what I learned very quickly was that unfortunately, because of the compounding effect of running every four to five hours, my body was really kind of, um, getting beat up more like that marathon run uh, and that long distance run that I just never put my body through. So the first thing I learned and what I have to be honest about is I didn't do enough long distance running to put my muscles through the process, um, that it needed in, in relationship to, to what the race was going to, to make my body have to go through. So that's, that's, you know, change number one. Now, on top of that, I said, well, what can I do from a dietary standpoint? And the second thing I realized is I wasn't wrong with my diet. Uh, certainly 
I, there's ultra runners and ultra endurance athletes that do a very low carbohydrate. Having said that there are advantages to carbohydrates. Uh, they do help you retain water. They, and, and which is important from a hydration standpoint, they do help you retain salt. And we'll kind of get into that today. So from a sodium balance standpoint and, uh, uh and a muscle cramping standpoint, there's some advantage to some of that carbohydrate use, but ultimately I probably just was deficient in the amount of electrolytes I was putting into my body, regardless of the dietary choices that I would have made, whether it was more, uh, vegetarian or more carnivorous either way. I think at the end of the day, it was just off on my hydration slash electrolyte. So I wanted to dive into the literature about electrolyte balance and kind of just share with you what I found. And, um, you know, maybe this will be helpful for many of you as you guys dial into your own hydration needs. Although we're going into some cooler months here in North America and, and most of the States that, uh, F3 is part of will be getting colder and colder. So the loss of maybe some of the water during an exercise or, you know, hydration needs may change a little bit than they are during the hotter summer months. It still is a good practice to know exactly what our body needs from a hydration electrolyte standpoint. And then more importantly, if you are gearing up for some CSOP or longer endurance type of activity, these are some strategies that you can take with you to hopefully uh, prevent you from experiencing some of the things that I had experienced when I did uh, the Blue Ridge Relay here recently. So what are electrolytes? Well, electrolytes are minerals that conduct electricity when, in, when dissolved in a solvent. And that solvent usually, especially in the human body, is water. They supply an electrical current that helps control your heartbeat, coordinate muscle contraction, and control the movement of water in your body so that fluids stay evenly distributed uh, throughout. The main electrolytes are sodium, chloride, potassium, magnesium, calcium, phosphate, and bicarbonate. Of these seven minerals, the three most importantly, uh, most important ones rather, that it, it, in relationship to kind of cramping and dehydration and what we think of electrolyte use for are sodium, chloride, and potassium. Magnesium, calcium, and phosphate are also important, but they do things like more like building bone or repairing DNA. And then bicarbonate isn't considered essential because your body will produce its own amount. So essential products, when we talk about something's essential or not essential, essential are things that you must consume because your body doesn't create on its own and non-essential things are things that your body will make on its own. Doesn't mean they're not important or you can't consume them. It just means that your body does make it. And therefore it's not essential that you get it from your diet. Our bodies store electrolytes in one of three places. Uh, inside our cells or outside of our cells or in the blood and in urine. Uh, we absorb electrolytes through our food, drink, and excrete, uh, excrete them through our sweat, urine, and even feces. So common causes of low electrolytes include dehydration, 
um, fluid loss by excessive sweating, diarrhea, or vomiting, eating disorders, um, like an, uh, anorexia or bulimia, you know, obviously vomiting there, or just a lack of intake of um, electrolytes, poor diets, you know, so specifically like the you know, standard American diet typically has poor nutrient dances, uh, density in it, kidney disease, uh, congestive heart failure, and then certain medications such as water pills or laxatives can all be causes uh, to make you lose electrolytes pretty quickly. Common symptoms of an electrolyte imbalance can include irregular heartbeat, confusion, fatigue, muscle weakness, headaches, numbness, stomach pain, convulsions, constipation, frequent urination, dry mouth and mood changes, increased thirst, vomiting, and loss of appetite. Now, when we think of electrolyte loss or the main reason most of us might not have the proper amount of electrolytes, most of us probably default to dehydration, uh, especially in the context of F3 or posting, or certainly in my scenario, when I was doing extended running and losing tons of water weight, uh, dehydration seems to be a major culprit for why most people in our society has low electrolytes or an electrolyte imbalance. Dehydration is defined as net water loss or losing more water than you take in. And the consequence of dehydration is low body water state called hypohydration. So you're generally considered hypohydrated if you've lost about 1% of your body weight as water. Dehydration and hypohydration aren't technically the same thing, but most people use them interchangeably. Whereas dehydration is the process of losing fluids, whereas hypohydration is the result of losing those fuels. So dehydration is actually the process of losing the fuel or the, the fluids and hypohydration is the result or the state you're in as a result of that. Now, the most common form of dehydration is something they call isotonic dehydration. And that involves proportional losses of sodium and fluids. So sweating would be a good example of that, uh, of isotonic dehydration. You're losing both sweat or excuse me, salt and water uh, in proportion to each other simultaneously. And then there's something called hypertonic dehydration and hypotonic dehydration. So hypertonic dehydration is when you lose more water than salt and then hypodehydrotic or hypotonic dehydration is you're losing more salt than water. So anything with a diuretic effect falls into like a hypotonic category where you're losing much more salt and you're losing more sodium quickly than you lose the optimal amount of water for that sodium to exist in. Like ketogenic dieting actually can cause this uh, for instance, uh, dehydration comes or, or have, you know, several symptoms that are pretty prominent. One is a headache, fatigue, cramps, dry mouth, for instance. And what they do know is when you're hypohydrated, remember the state you are in as a result of dehydration, your 
exercise tolerance actually decreases and performance suffers. They don't know why exactly why this happens, but the one low, one thought process rather is that uh, when you're low on body water, your internal cooling mechanisms become less effective. So therefore skin temperature increases and your ability to sweat and therefore cool down decreases. So this is also why at any given temperature, higher humidity makes exercise harder and more physically stressful. So even if you're well hydrated, high humidity reduces the effectiveness of evaporative cooling, you know, through your sweat. And they found that even in um, studies, one with cyclists, for instance, who are hypohydrated, the performance declined in lockstep with rising skin temperature. So as the skin temperature rises, your ability to sweat or your ability to cool down and be more effective during exercise becomes less and less. And so that's why many of us, you know, especially that live in an area that can get extremely humid, specifically in the summer, we just get our energy zapped and our performance goes down much quicker. It's not that we don't have enough hydration. It's just that your body's not cooling at a, a an adequate temperature and therefore can be a problem. So if you're hypohydrated as a result of dehydration is the quick fix then just to add more water into your system. You know, a lot of times, especially when people are talking about prepping for races and prepping for endurance, you know, activities, there's a big push about get your water in plenty of water. Uh, even when I participated in, you know, the grow ruck, they had this three liter minimum, if you will, of what everyone needed to carry of water and water refueled and water and water and water. And, and not that that's, in and of itself bad, but what we also know is unfortunately just adding water back in is not necessarily the solution either. There's a fancy term that they use for optimal hydration. It's called U-hydration or EU-hydration. And according to a review paper from the journal Nutrients, U-hydration is the state of preserving body water within its optimal homeostatic range. So once again, the state of preserving body water within its optimal homeostatic range. And so what you'll notice in that definition, it doesn't say anything about actually drinking water. Hydration is a state of fluid balance in your body, not the act of just drinking a bunch of water. So hydration has everything to do with body or fluid balance, not the amount of fluid in it. So a state of you hydration is essential for good health as you know, 50 to 70% of your body weight is water. And so maintaining this balance keeps your blood flowing through your veins, your brain sitting in your cerebrospinal fluid, like it's supposed to keeps your body temperature constant and, and many, many more things. Now your body naturally does a pretty good job of, you know, maintaining you hydration. For instance, if you happen to drink too much water and, you know, you overconsume it, your body will simply pee it out. You know, you're urinated out. And if you're not drinking enough water, you release a hormone like an antidiuretic 
uh, to retain it. It's, you know, it's something that your brain sends a signal to your kidneys that says, hey, hold on to water, no longer um, filling up the bladder so that that hydration or that water will continue to circulate the system until you replenish it with some more. Now, hydration, as we mentioned, isn't just about water. The electrolytes are essential as, as well. And so there's a right and wrong way to rehydrate. And uh, we'll kind of talk about the, the chemistry makeup of that. Uh, if you hydrate, or excuse me, when we exercise, we excrete sweat. And sweat is basically salty water coming out of our system. That's what's going on with that. And so if all we're doing when it comes to rehydrating ourselves is putting in a bunch of just water back, you're actually creating this balance in your, in your, in your water system or in your blood system where you don't have enough sodium in comparison to um, the water. And we talked about the purpose of electrolytes and electrolytes you know, are these chemically charged minerals that allow a lot of these processes to go. So as we lose electrolytes and we just hydrate our body with more water, we're actually making the situation worse. And that's why we talk about wanting to add more um, electrolytes into, into, the, into the body. There's actually a condition or, uh, you know, of what it's referred to when we don't have enough sodium in our body. It's called hyponatremia. And hyponatremia actually is what really disrupts the health of athletes more than just dehydration. So usually it's not de a dehydrated athlete that becomes an, an, you know, becomes a problem. It's the fact that they've lost sodium and not replenishing enough sodium back that they get this condition called hyponatremia. Um, about 15% of endurance athletes suffer from low serum sodium after a race. And the consequences on the milder end is muscle cramps, fatigue, uh, even confusion. And it kind of gets more serious, like seizures, brain damage, and it can even be lethal. Been rare cases where people have drank themselves to death with water. And that can happen too with an athlete who's depleted a lot of sodium from their system, a lot of electrolytes from their system as a result of heavy sweating and then hydrating themselves with just water and not the electrolyte balance back can create these severe conditions. You know, the reality is barring the medical condition, we probably won't develop, you know, hyponatremia, but most likely you'll have things like the headaches, the fatigue, the weakness, and low energy. In fact, a 2003 consensus statement from the International Olympic Committee reads sufficient fluid should be consumed during exercise to delimit or to limit dehydration to less than about 2% of body mass. Sodium should be included when sweat losses are high, especially if exercise uh, lasts more than two hours. So once again, you should continue to hydrate uh, to where you're not losing less than, or, you know, 2% of your body mass in water and that sodium should be included into that electrolyte rehydration, especially if you're exercising more than two hours. 
So we mentioned this already, healthy hydration equals water plus electrolytes, not just electrolytes. Sodium and potassium are the chief fluid balancing electrolytes. Uh, sodium is a positively charged mineral called a cation. Uh, it's responsible for regulating extracellular fluids, so the fluid outside of the cell. And potassium helps balance the fluid inside the cell. So all cells have this uh, funky little pump called the sodium-potassium pump. And that is necessary to charge the cell so that the cell can then do its job and communicate to other cells and have the potential for work. The sodium potassium pump uh, does many function. It maintains the cell's membrane potential. It keeps the cell charged up or the nerve impulses ready to fire. I'll talk about that in a second. It regulates brain cell activity, helps transport glucose and amino acids into the cell, and even keeps fluids balanced within the cells. Nerve cells are especially heavy users of the sodium potassium pump. Uh, a whopping 70% of the ATP they consume goes to powering it. So 70% of the nerve cells uh, energy needs are just utilized for the purposes of the sodium potassium pump. The pump dictates how and well and when rather nerve impulses fire it enables the transmission of electrochemical signals that tell your heart to beat your bicep to curl and your neurons to receive and interpret sensory data. So point is when your pumps don't run smoothly, your body will absolutely notice that. Now the big boss of fluid balance is in your brain. Uh, if your tissues get oversaturated with water. So this is where we've consume too much water without the proper electrolytes, osmoreceptors in your brain pick up on that. And then your brain structure called the hypothalamus stops producing antidiuretic hormones so that you can excrete the excess fluid through the urine. So um, I thought one interesting thing that I learned kind of through this whole process is the concept of pee uh, or urine. A lot of times we think of urine as just like our kidneys filtering um, waste product and we're peeing out excess liquid from our system, but which is true. But what it really is, is your, it, it's, it's excess blood. What we're, our, our urine, in other words, is nothing more than filtered blood. I never, I never really thought of it like that. So how much electrolytes do you need? Well, there's some mixed bag on this as far as recommendations if you just look at the recommended daily allowances through like the um, FDA, for instance, you know, what they say is you need about um, 1300 milligrams of calcium per day, uh, 1250 milligrams of phosphorus per day, 420 milligrams of magnesium per day, 4,700 milligrams of potassium, 2,300 milligrams of chloride, and no more than 2,300 milligrams of sodium. But most experts and people that have looked at the research highly recommend much more than that. Um, in fact, some research actually shows um, the closer to five grams or higher of sodium a day that you get 
the better you're going to be, which kind of leads into, you know, does sodium cause heart disease? Because that is one of the biggest reasons this recommendation is out there that um, they make claims that high salt diets are poor for your health, specifically in, in context of cardiovascular and heart disease. But what does the research actually show? In fact, uh, most of the low salt recommendations come from observational studies published several decades ago and studies done on rats from the 1960s and 70s. So what are observational studies? Observational studies are just when researchers look at raw, you know, data of a population at large. Um, they may take 150 people or probably more than that, thousands of people in a, in a population, you know, area and look at a handful of factors that are affecting their lives, usually done in survey form, you know, asking people how much of this they do or that they do. And based on that data, they make correlations. They basically say, well, if we look at all the people that have heart disease, for instance, in this population, and we also look at what they are consuming from a sodium standpoint, we're making an observational study that says that for the most part, those individuals who are having higher sodium diets also were the same people that were having the heart disease. But there was really no actual control group. There was no actual scientific study done where some people were given a certain amount of salt per day and other people weren't, and they were kind of measuring actual health, you know, biomarkers like blood pressure and cholesterol levels and all those type of things. So in other words, it can be useful, but it's not um, what we consider optimal scientific research. So those type of studies, as well as studies done on rats in the 1960s and 70s, is what proponents of low-salt diet and intake use as reasoning of why you should limit your salt intake, which unfortunately doesn't necessarily translate into uh, actual human needs or the risk of cardiovascular disease. They did have, there is one interesting study that was published in the Journal of American Medical Association, uh, Association several years back, where it followed 4,700 plus heart disease patients for over several years. And they would routinely measure sodium excretion, excretion as a proxy for sodium intake. So when you measure how much somebody, how much sodium somebody is urinating out, for instance, you can kind of correlate how much they're, they're consuming. And so when they wrapped up the study, 2000 of the patients had died from stroke, heart attack, or other cardiac related deaths. And then researchers plotted the risk of death data against the sodium intake data. So again, 4,700 heart disease patients in the trial or in the, in the study, they were monitored over several years. Uh, they were routinely checked for how much sodium they excreted. And then by the end of the study, about half of those people had died. Again, remember, these are heart disease patients um, from whether they died from stroke, heart attack, or other cardiac-related deaths. And then the, the researchers basically said, okay, out of these people that dead, how much salt 
on average were these people taking? And so what they, once the, the graph was plotted, it actually resembled a U. And the U basically did this. They found that those individuals who had extremely low um, levels of sodium in their diet, like real, real low, um, actually showed high prevalence of death, of stroke, cardiovascular disease, and so forth. And they also showed that those individuals with extremely high levels of sodium, for instance, um, also showed that, but that there was this kind of sweet spot in the middle. And that sweet spot was close to about that 4.7 to 5 grams of salt or sodium per day as that optimal level of sodium in relationship to heart disease, stroke, or whatever, which if we kind of go back up to what the RDA said, it was about 2.3 grams per day max. And what the study actually shows is that actually kind of can correlate closer to that higher risk than lower risk. And that salt is essential for health. We talked about the muscle pumping and neurological factors that sodium um, allows as a result of that sodium potassium pump, and that those individuals that absolutely abstain from salt are actually doing more detriment to their health in, in relationship to those that are over consuming it. And that those individuals that actually consume about four to five grams per day, um, were actually in that, that healthier market or, or, or spot. So just food for thought, most of us probably aren't getting enough sodium in our diet, especially if we are exercising and excreting electrolytes and we're relatively eating healthy. And I say that because if you are somebody who is eating what we consider a standard American diet, a lot of processed food, a lot of fast foods, you are probably getting copious amounts of salt in that, um, probably too much. And that's because, you know, those manufacturers put a lot of sodium in those products because it just is a taste enhancer. It covers up the blandness of having no nutrient value in those foods. So if you are somebody with a very poor diet, chances are you are probably getting enough salt in your diet and you probably need to find, and, and we'll talk about uh, another strategy with your electrolytes, but those of us who are maybe following much more of an organic whole food diet, there's a good probability we're not getting enough sodium in our just daily dietary needs. And, and, and especially for sweating, exercising, using saunas, doing those type of things, there's a high probability of adding electrolytes back in specifically sodium is a very good strategy to do. Now there are you know, genetic concerns that we need to talk about just real quickly. Um, obviously, if you already have high blood pressure or are prone to hypertension, then maybe adding that much salt into your diet is not a good thing. So if you're already battling with high blood pressure, you're already um, at risk for hypertension, you know, uh, you know, take this and, and heed the sodium intake, you know, with your doctor and, 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 and be smart about it. Although what we really find out is to lower that it, 
if you're eating a healthy diet, again, let, let, let me, let me preface this. If you're eating a poor diet, you're probably getting plenty of sodium with that processed food. If you're eating a good diet and you still have higher blood pressure or hypertensive, uh, ness, it's not that reducing salt in your diet is the best thing for you to do. Instead, adding more potassium to your diet would much probably provide you much better health results. Because remember, there's this ratio of sodium to potassium. So one way of diluting the hypertensiveness that sodium provides or can cause is also increasing potassium because now that pump ratio will be much closer to normal and therefore it will lower that hypertensive risk. So again, this is not medical advice. It's just that if you are eating a healthier diet, but still battle with higher blood pressure, adding more potassium will probably serve you better than just reducing sodium. Because the other thing can happen is when we uber restrict and ultra restrict our sodium, again, according to that research we just talked about, there could also be that problem. And we talked about that hyponatremia earlier where that sodium level is too low in the body and you can have all type of health problems um, as well. So the easy way of getting more potassium in your diet is fruits and vegetables. So those seem to have the most. Now you potassium is, you know, in meat products and other products that we can consume. So you don't have to have fruits and vegetables for those of you that maybe are more on that carnivorous diet and maybe really restrict fruits and vegetables. Um, you are still getting potassium through other sources of the foods that you are choosing to eat as well as maybe an electrolyte supplement that we'll, we'll dive into as well. 4.7 grams of potassium per day is good evidence based on, you know, what your body needs. And so again, if you are battling with hypertension, high blood pressure, and one of the strategies has been just to reduce sodium, let me encourage you to maybe add potassium in as well and, and still get proper amounts of sodium in your diet so that your body can continue to do well. All right. So if you don't eat enough sodium, there is problems that can happen. We talked about the hyponatremia, your kidneys go into something called a sodium sparing mode. In other words, you don't excrete as much sodium because you're just not getting enough sodium in your diet. Uh, if you think about like a wartime rations, when sodium is scarce, you save some for later and your body does the same thing, but, and you might be saying, well, what's the big deal? Don't I need sodium in my blood and, and my body's just not getting rid of it? Uh, what's the big deal as long as the balance is, is good? Well, it does come with some consequences, namely a flood of hormones like aldosterone, renin, and norepinephrine will increase as a result of that. Both renin and aldosterone raise your blood pressure and norepinephrine isn't bad you know, per se, but it is part of the stress response and it could boost levels of blood pressure spiking, um, renin. So here we are, you know, we're being told to reduce salt intake to help with blood pressure. But if we do it too much, our body actually reverses and creates that hypertensive reaction anyway. And this is why maybe in that, that study that that plot was 
like a U. Remember, too low also causes the heart disease and stroke, and too high was the same thing. Uh, also, the, the biggest risk of hyponatremia um, is the muscle cramps, the fatigue, the seizures, confusion. M more importantly, brain damage um, can happen as well. So getting enough sodium in your diet um, is, is key. One easy way we talked about already is just adding a little salt to your water. That can be a little pinch of Himalayan sea salt throughout the day and so forth. Now, there are other ways of getting electrolytes back in. Now, most people advocate for just getting your electrolyte needs back in through your diet. So eating the right foods, and, and many people can do that, uh, especially if you're not overtraining, if you're just maybe doing a little bit of exercise here and there, if you're not overly sweating, if you're not using things like saunas and other things to really in, elicit a high sweat response, and you're eating a pretty healthy diet, chances are you might have a great electrolyte balance just in and of itself. And having to supplement from it, uh, for it may not be necessary. Uh, sources of different electrolytes are as follows calcium sources, of course, uh, dairy products like yogurt, kefir, raw milk, cheese, canned sardines, leafy greens, and almonds, phosphorus sources, meat, fish, poultry, dairy, nuts, seeds, and legumes, magnesium sources, nuts, seeds, dark chocolate, avocados, whole grains, and beans, potassium sources, bananas, potatoes, spinach, lentils, beans, beets, dried fruit, chloride sources, table salt, salt, seaweed, tomatoes, celery, olives, and sodium sources uh, are cottage cheese, table salt, of course, pickles, and olives. Now, as I mentioned, many people just kind of doing the standard American lifestyle, meaning they're not overly training, exerting themselves, over sweating. They may be fine, but there are certain populations that may find that adding an electrolyte mix or replenisher is necessary to optimize their electrolyte balance. One is those athletes, for instance, who lose a lot of sodium through sweat. Um, the Journal of Sports Science estimates that athletes have a daily sodium loss of 3.5 to 7 grams. And that's in addition to their baseline sodium needs. So especially during the warmer months, if you're out there posting and you're really just sweating it up, if you're one of those guys that can wring out your shirt uh, at the end of the workout, chances are you're probably falling into this category or longer endurance events and so forth. So, or if you might be using a sauna or, or whatever. So anyway, uh, if you're sweating a lot or you're doing something, the, the just getting it through your standard diet or, or just eating enough electrolytes may not work. The second is if you're a low carb dieter or a keto diet, for instance, you excrete extra sodium because you lower your insulin levels. So this was a unique physiology thing that I kind of learned through this process. And if you remember at the top, I was kind of sharing a little bit about my dietary strategy going into the race was more of this ketogenic low carb diet. And so what happens 
as your body switches um, the metabolic fueling source that it uses. So a lot of times, you know, if you have carbohydrates in your diet, your body will use those because they're very easy to use. And, but if you're restricting carbohydrates, your body has to find something else to use. And that's where it gets fat adapted and start burning fat instead of carbs. But it comes, um, at another, uh, consequence. And I say consequence, um, in air quotes, you're losing more water as a result of that. Your body doesn't hold on to water as much because you don't have as many carbohydrates being stored for energy. And so, because you don't have as much carbohydrates being stored, the need for the water decreases. So your body loses water. And this is why a lot of times when people go on low carb diets or ketogenic diets, they lose five to 10 pounds pretty quickly. It's really a lot of water weight you're losing right away because your body's releasing that water because it no longer needs it for carb storage. And what comes out with water? Yep. Sodium. So your body loses sodium and other electrolytes when you go on these ketogenic low carb diets. And so therefore keeping optimal levels of electrolytes may become more difficult for those individuals who are practicing that style of life. And then lastly, those who practice fasting, who lose lots of sodium due to uh, naturesis of fasting. And so again, kind of similar to the low carb diet, as your body restricts water or excuse me, restricts food, um, it reduces the need for insulin spiking or, or reduce the, the need for insulin release, uh, which then just promotes water excretion and then therefore um, uh, electrolytes. So for me, I kind of had all three uh, going uh, as far as losing electrolytes. I was highly sweating, uh, using a lot of energy. I had a very low carb diet and I practice a lot of intermittent fasting, for instance. And so no wonder my electrolytes were way out of kilter. And that, that's somebody, if you're somebody like that, that's probably something you need to consider. So when it comes to adding electrolytes back into our diet or back into our system, there are obviously ways of doing that. And we talked about our diet, but unfortunately for those of us that are doing some of those other things or if you're really finding yourself depleted, just eating food alone may not do that. For instance, to get adequate amounts of potassium, you'd have to eat like eight or nine bowls of vegetables. Well, no one's really going to be doing that, um, for instance, or really consuming copious amounts of salt, uh, you know, just really putting it on every piece of food that you have or drinking gallons of it. And it's really not something that most of us will do. So the hack really, and, and the easiest way of doing it is to buy like an electrolyte drink or drink a drink something that has uh, an electrolyte mixture in it. So when it comes to that, there are a handful of options out there. We obviously know of some very popular ones that's been around for a long, long time with big advertising budgets. And we see those things, but how healthy are they? And are they really providing us the electrolyte replenishing uh, that we really need to, to be healthy. I like to look at electrolyte drinks as the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we want to stick with the good and we want to avoid those bad and ugly ones. The ugly and the bad are the ones with lots of sugar. They're the ones with the artificial colors and the artificial sweeteners. They have 
lots of carbohydrates, for instance. They may have uh, an ingredient that's very common called maltodextrin, which is a food additive that thickens products. But the problem with it is it actually has a higher glycemic index than sugar, meaning that the body responds to it like drinking a bunch of sugar, which creates that insulin spike, which actually puts your body into this fat storage mode. So a lot of times individuals who are consuming lots of those commercial, commercialized rather uh, activity drinks or electrolyte drinks aren't really doing any benefit to their health long-term. Instead, they're adding more calories, they're gaining more fat, and they're not even replenishing their system with adequate ratios of electrolytes. Most of those formulas don't even contain the necessary dosage that your body actually needs. Instead, you want a product that's void of those ingredients. You want something that's just going to concentrate on electrolytes, maybe some B vitamins, some mixtures may have a little bit of natural caffeine or something. Those are okay, but these artificial colored sweeteners and um, high sugar drinks is, is something we want to avoid. Now, when it comes to even the good electrolyte drinks, there is a variety to choose from. Uh, depending on who you read or what the formulation was, some <clears throat> kind of concentrate on more sodium and some concentrate on more potassium, for instance. And then you have a combination along the board that has different ratios uh, of everything in it. Now, you want one, in my opinion, that has more than just sodium. You certainly want one that has potassium and you want the one, one that probably has some magnesium in it. Uh, some of the other electrolytes, chloride, for instance, should be in it. Most of the time they putting, they're putting salt in it. And so sodium chloride, for instance, uh, it'll contain both. And um, you want to make sure it has a little bit of variety when it comes to that electrolyte uh, rebalancing, if you will. Now, many on the market will have higher amounts of potassium in relationship to sodium. And I think that's mainly because of the American Medical Association or certainly the Heart Association's assumption that we have too much sodium in our diets and therefore too much sodium is, is a problem to add to a beverage and therefore will lead to cardiovascular concerns. We kind of approached that already. I, I gave you um, the reason why I don't feel like that's probably the case for those of us who eat a healthy diet, we're probably not overly consuming sodium, but because of that, uh, reality and the dogma and the stigma around sodium, I would bet to venture. That's why the majority across the board seem to have more potassium in their, uh, formula versus sodium. So if you look on the market, and even if you look at quote unquote good ones without the extra added ingredients, many of them, when you're looking at the milligrams of the electrolytes down the board, you will see probably potassium being on a higher level than sodium. And that again, goes back to the RDA where they're recommending 4,700 milligrams of potassium versus the 2,300 milligrams of sodium. Now, having said that, those of us who have been informed do we consider maybe looking at the sodium intake and consider adding more sodium versus the potassium? So 
I, I found two products out there that uh, one that was higher in potassium and uh, substantially higher in potassium, if you will. And one that was much higher in, in their mindset was around sodium and they have potassium in it and it has magnesium, but sodium was certainly the higher intake and both school of thought, um, have some good, you know, reasoning behind it. And I think it's going to be a matter of someone, an individual choosing to maybe experiment with each one and to decide for themselves if, if that one is better for them or not. I will say if you're probably somebody that's not exerting tons of sweat and you're not finding yourself, um, you know, losing high amount of sodium through that process, then maybe adding that potassium one could just give you that electrolyte, um, um, rebound that you're looking for. And it might be fine. Having said that, I think if you're somebody that's really higher on that sodium loss spectrum, maybe you're sweating a lot. Maybe you have some of those lifestyle factors we talked about. You're on the ketogenic diet, you might fast, um, and, and so forth. You may find that adding the sodium back in actually will be more beneficial for you. That's just something you're going to have to play with. I will say I looked up the kind of ratios, if you will, of coconut water. And, and many experts believe that coconut water is a fantastic way of rehydrating because of this electrolyte mix. And just looking at that, I will say that it does have much more potassium in it than sodium. So that camp that advocates for much more potassium versus sodium, that's a maybe win for them to kind of say, listen, in nature, in a hydrating beverage, if you will, coconut water being the example I'm using, potassium is higher than sodium. And if we're kind of keeping it real, real natural and ideal, maybe that's the way we want to do it. But then on the flip side, because of those other factors we already talked about, and, and you might be somebody that needs more sodium, the sodium intake one may prove to be a better benefit for you. I will say personally, I have leaned more towards the higher sodium. I have chosen a product that has that. I have been using that product pretty regularly here in the last couple of weeks. And I will say, I really enjoy it. I have found that it has given me a lot of um, improvement in my overall uh, ability not to cramp, uh, more energy. Uh, my cognitive uh, function, it seems to be better. So I have chosen to use that. Now, I was already using an electrolyte supplement probably in the last eight, nine weeks already. One that I get through um, a professional corporation that, I, that we also sell other supplements through. And that mix had a higher potassium ratio in it. In addition, it also has some B vitamins and a little bit of caffeine in it. Now, I enjoyed that drink and I still use that drink. And I'll tell you what I do. I use that drink earlier in the morning uh, when caffeine typically is a benefit for me. I find that if I have caffeine later in the day, that it's not good. And then use this other one that um, I kind of switch to later in the day. And I use it later because it doesn't have any caffeine in it. So if you're somebody who's sensitive to caffeine, or if you're in a position, like had I had this other one um, throughout 
the BRR, for instance, I probably would have used a lot more of it. One of the things I did do during the BRR that um, I should have not done is I restricted my electrolyte replenishing because the only product I had was the caffeinated one. And I didn't want that to affect me later in the night if I did want to try to get a little nap in or whatever. Now, in hindsight, I would have and should have used it regardless. But in any case, having this non-caffeinated option is super um, beneficial to me now and moving forward, know that uh, if I'm doing a GRR or, or BRR rather, or GTE, I will probably be utilizing multiple packets throughout that event to continuously hydrate and hydrate remembers not just about water. It's about proper electrolyte balance uh, throughout the whole process. So anyway, I hope, you know, a lot of this information uh, was helpful to you. I do know that there's some really good podcasts and resources out there about the benefits of sodium, how it affects our brain the importance of it in our diet and why many people are probably sodium deficient that I would encourage you to go check it out. Some long form uh, interviews, as well as just people diving way deeper in the science than I got to today. But uh, like I said, at the beginning of the show, this was something I wanted to dial in for my own nutritional purposes. And as I learned it, I wanted to um, emphasize, you know, the learning process by trying to regurgitate it and teach it to other people. And here was my attempt. So hopefully you guys gained some value out of this. Hopefully you are recognizing that electrolyte use is valuable and beneficial, especially when you're sweating a lot. Um, those of you who are maybe on a low carb keto diet and those that, um, maybe are practicing some fasting, maybe, uh, maybe this will be a good tidbit for you to know that, uh, adding electrolytes might be more important for you because of that water loss that happens with that style of lifestyle. But anyway, hopefully, uh, again, you guys take this and run with it. And uh, I'm honored to have you guys as listeners and please continue to reach out to me with ideas for show topics. If you have questions about this, love to engage in that and answer any questions. Or if you find something that I said is uh, challengeable, um, you know, and you want to uh, uh, point it out, I'd, I'd love that feedback as well. But until next time, this has been Bones guiding the packs of F3 Nation on their hunt. For wellness. Thanks for listening to the Hunt for Wellness podcast. Please rate and review our show and be sure to share it with your F3 brothers. As always, we are looking for inspiring stories to share and health experts to interview. So if that's you, please reach out to me at bones at huntforwellness.com, on the nation's Slack at bones, or Twitter at HFW podcast. And until next time, this has been Bones guiding the packs of F3 Nation on their hunt for wellness.